Awesome to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you're new, visiting, checking out Wellspring, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving here as pastor. If you are a kid and you'd like to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Cassie is over there and she would love to hang out with you. She's got her hand up. If you're sitting on this side, you can kind of walk around or just come right down the stairs, however you want to do it. So while they're gathering, I just have a quick little announcement I wanted to share with you guys something that's going on. So I met with uh, folks at Robert Down, and it seems like there's a little bit of a need happening uh, at Robert Down right now. Uh, It seems like each year there's about 60 students that enroll in, uh, basically they need extra food. And then there's about 20 students generally each year that uh, actually need food for the weekend. And so there's three churches in Pacific Grove that are going to partner together to try and meet that need. Uh, So I've been meeting with St. Mary's and then uh, Peninsula Christian Center up on the corner. And so our goal is to try and meet all the food needs on the weekend for those students who sign up for this project. So this is the way you can participate. We basically need to fundraise maybe about a thousand bucks to try and cover some of that cost. Or uh, if you want to bring in instant oatmeals and granola bars and those kind of things, we can add those, supplement them to the basic weekend grocery bag that we're trying to distribute. So if you want to give a, just a specific earmark donation this Sunday to support that, just let us know what it's for. Um, or if you want to donate instant oatmeal or granola bars, just don't get something that's going to expire next week. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not, we don't need name brand, but basically something to meet that need. We really want to be a church that is responding to needs locally. I think there's an opportunity for churches in Pacific Grove to also work together. So if that stirs you, that gets you excited, awesome. Uh, let us know. Uh, all right, with that said, so we've been traveling through the Gospel of John. We've been in this book, if you've been here for over the last year and a half, basically the whole time, uh, slowly working our way with some topical messages sprinkled in between. We are in John 20, so we've seen the Word made flesh move into the neighborhood, do all these crazy signs of who God is in the world. In the last few chapters, we've watched Jesus do some teachings uh, with his intimate disciples. We have seen Jesus betrayed, we have seen him denied, and we have seen him tortured and crucified. This morning, we enter into John 20, which is about the resurrection. Now, I remember as a kid... Um, we didn't go to church all that much, but when we did go, it was almost always at least on Easter and Christmas, right? So there were these two days that were like, whether I complained a lot or not, we went. And I would sort of, I I was not very helpful to my mom because I was just like, hey, why do we go these two other days? Like, I get Jesus is born. I get the resurrection. Like, I get it. Why? What's the big deal? Like, why can we skip the other 50? Why do we have to come to these two? And my mom was like, didn't know how to respond. She's just like, get in the car, you know. We're going. And put on some nice clothes, you know. And the more I thought about it, uh, I started to realize, actually, Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, kind of agreed with my mom that there was something important about the resurrection. Paul writes this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says this. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Okay, Paul, you have my attention, right? There's something distinctly important about the resurrection. There is something super important that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, not as like a historical fable, but as a historical event, 
So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at John chapter 20, and we're going to lean into what one of the eyewitnesses has to say about this, uh, this story, this event, this morning, this day. I'm going to divide it into three parts just to sort of flow through the text a little bit. Uh, this is part one. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. All right. Let's just slow down for a second and imagine this scene. So Mary Magdalene, there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament, so it can be a little confusing, like, what Mary are we talking about? Right? There's like Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, right? The brother-sister combo, Trinity, I don't know what that is, threesome, uh, whatever it is. Uh, two, two women, one man, brother, sister, chapter 11, right? He is raised from the dead. Um, so you have that Mary, and then you have Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of Luke is said to have seven evil spirits that torment her and that she is freed from those oppressive spirits by the person of Jesus and therefore, and as a result, she follows him. She just follows him wherever he goes. She follows him uh, when the other disciples have abandoned him. She follows him when he is hanging up, dying on a cross. She follows him when he is dead and taken down from the cross. Mary Magdalene is there. She's there in that horrific moment when Jesus is put in a tomb. She's there in that horrific Saturday Sabbath when they are wondering what they will do with their lives. Mourning, weeping in that Saturday when they can't do much and they wait. And she's still trying to be with them that Sunday morning in the dark as she's walking to the tomb. And she's carrying spices with her because she knows, right, in the Middle East, it's been a couple days, body's decomposed. She knows that Jesus' body is going to smell. So she's carrying spices, not because she thinks the spices are going to do much, but they're going to cover over the scent. Mary's walking in the morning. Imagine how you would feel in that moment. The person you've given up all this for is dead. The person who has changed your life is dead. So in the, the wee early mornings of the first day, that Sunday morning, she walks to the tomb. And then it says, okay, she gets there, and the first thing she knows, notices, is that the rock in front of the tomb is moved. Now, I want you to imagine, Mary, for a second. You don't have a cell phone. There's no 911, right? Carrier pigeons, probably the fastest thing you can imagine. What do you do? You're there by yourself. You're there. You're there. What do you do? How do you respond? John tells us what she does. She runs back to the disciples. Seems like they're together. And then she says, you know, they've taken Jesus' body. Now, for us, that might be not be the first thing you think, 
like grave robbery, but actually in the first century, there's actually archaeologists that have found evidence, right, that Claudius issued a decree in the first century saying, hey, capital punishment for anyone who robs a body or steals from a grave in the first century. So this is actually a thing. This is something happening in the culture, so this is not like crazy that she says someone stole his body. This is a historical possibility, and that's how she connects the dots. Which brings me to part two. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. All right, so what do we see? Mary runs to the disciples, and then we basically like have a tag relay race thing going on. Right? You have Peter gets dusted by the unnamed disciple. You know, many historians think John. Uh, he just gets destroyed, right? Peter gets there first. I mean, the unnamed disciple, likely John, gets there first. But then Peter rushes in, right? When I used to work at the group homes, uh, so back in my 20s, we used to work in these group homes, and it was often, it was for teenage, teenagers, mostly at meth addicts, mostly gang kids. And I found that there were two types of staff. Like if a big riot fight broke out, there were basically staff responded two ways. There were people that act before thinking, and then there are people who like try and get a sense of what's going on before they respond. I was always on the side of like, let's scan the scene. Let's see what's happening. And I had friends who were like, fight? Okay, I'll stop it. You know, they just like dive in. That's Peter, right? Mary has just said, hey, there's grave robbers. I think John is like, or the unnamed disciples like, is anyone still here with a weapon? I mean, what would you do? Marauding gang, robbing. It's like, what is happening? Let's check, right? Peter's like, act first, think later. He dives in. Now, if you're like me, you may skip over or think to skip over this whole linen cloth thing in verses 6 and 7. You're like, okay, great, linen cloth. Let's get to the angels, you know? There's actually super important that we don't. This is the first century evidence of what actually has happened, right? There's, I know there's police in our congregation, there's military police, like, you don't just skip over the evidence to get to the cool part of the story. And there's a reason. They say, John says something very specific. He says, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. What this means, the Greek is saying is, it's almost like if Jesus' body was a balloon covered in linen and someone sort of slowly let the air out, the linen just sort of settles down on the ground as it would have been laying on his body. Okay? Super important detail. Now imagine the current working theory, grave robbery. You're a grave robber. What's the first thing you do when you take a body? You undress it, right? No. You take a body. 
You're not caring about leaving the linen. Two, you don't then put the linen back exactly how it would have been on the body. Like, who does that? John is giving us evidence that this isn't a grave robbery. He is giving us evidence that something more is at play. Now, Peter clearly doesn't get this, but it seems like this unnamed disciple says this, right? This is what John says. He saw and believed. We don't know exactly what he believed because right after that it says they didn't understand all the scriptures and how it, you know, made, the scriptures basically required that this happen. They don't get all that. But I do think maybe they have a bit of a contrast with chapter 11. Chapter 11, right? So now you're Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. How does Lazarus walk out of the grave? In his grave clothes. Then what happens? People are like, oh, let me help you with that. And they unwrap him. Super different than what is going on here. Lazarus is unwrapped so that he can re-enter normal life. Jesus is not. Jesus leaves the cloth, the linen, the attire, the wrappings meant for ordinary life because he has now entered a new way of being in the world. John, I think, is starting to get this. He sees and he believes. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, what do you do now? You have one disciple who doesn't get it, Peter, and you have one disciple who seems to get it. What do you do? Do you ponder Do you do like a 24-7 prayer vigil on that location? How do you respond? Like, do you bring more eyes in? Like, let's get the rest of them. Let's powwow. Let's brainstorm out what is going on. How do you respond? What would you do? Send another runner? We know what they do. They go back. They go back to their friends We don't know what they do once they get there. Do they pray? Do they share? Do they like hash it out like Peter says one thing, John says, or the unnamed disciple says something else? We don't know. Which brings me then to part three. Because what we do know is that Mary returns to the tomb. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, sort of the first century equivalent of miss, miss, why are you crying? They have taken away, taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, again, the first century equivalent of miss, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Sort of interesting to imagine what his clothes looked like. Anyway, she said... Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or rabbi. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. All right, part three begins with Mary weeping. 
Now, we don't know what she knows at this point. We don't know if she snuck a peek in the tomb. We don't know if she knows about the linen. We don't know if she is still latching on to her grave robber theory. We don't know. But we know that she is sitting there now by herself, weeping. Now, in the first century, you know, I think for us, like, we can grasp maybe some of the emotional, personal elements of her grieving and loss, but there's also this other cultural element at play where, like, in the first century, in the Orient, if someone messes with a dead body, this is, like, deeply offensive. So now she's, like, has this double-layer thing going on where she's weeping personally, but also grieving because this is, like, horrendous in Jewish culture in the first century to mess with a dead body. She takes this sort of peek into the tomb, and what does she see? Two angels. Now, an angel is a being who is a messenger of God that communicates about God and for God. We've seen this play out with angels actually numerous times in the Gospels already, right? Jesus' birth, what happens? Angels. This is what God is doing in the world, Joseph. This is what God is doing in the world, Mary. Okay, guys, you on that? Okay, shepherds, right? There's constant communication about who God is and what he's doing in the world. Jesus is temptation. Here again at the resurrection. We'll see it at the ascension. We'll see it throughout Acts. Angels are constantly intervening, communicating about what does it look like to participate in the plan of God in the world. I mean, this is, one day I would love to like spend a few weeks just talking about angels and the plan of God because it's really incredible and we rarely talk about it. Um, save for a future date. So Mary sees them, and this is what they say, you know, Miss, why are you crying? This, this is my opinion where it gets crazy interesting. So now I want you to think of one instance in the Bible where someone sees an angel and doesn't pay attention. One. Usually people are like, an angel, you know, like riveted. Mary sees something out of the corner of her eye, and she's like, wait, hold on a second. Did you see that in the text? She like catches something. She turns. She thinks it's the gardener. Hold on, angel. Gardener, I have a question for you. <laughs> and now she's going with her current grave robber theory, right? She's like, did you happen to take the body? Now, one of the reasons I probably, you're ending the Passover feast. It's spring, Right? Who else, after like the rager on the Sabbath, Saturday, like who else is going to be at the tomb that early? Probably the guy doing the lawn, the guy who is mowing and taking care of things. It must be the gardener. She's like, maybe he moved the body. He's cleaning up, taking care of things. Maybe he moved the body. She turns, right? And it's Jesus who's the gardener, but she doesn't know it. And what does he say? The exact same thing that the angel said. Miss why are you crying? And then there's this beautiful moment. All he has to say is, Mary. And in that moment, she knows who he is. Maybe it's the word he said before she cast out the demons that were in her. Maybe he had a particular way of saying it. In John 10, Jesus says, hey, guess what, guys? The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And in this moment, 
in this absolute moment of depression and hopelessness, she hears the one she has placed all her hope in say her name. And she's like, my teacher, you're here. And she goes up to him. Some scholars think she falls at his feet to grasp his feet. And he's like, hey, Mary, you know, I'm going to go to the Father. I have a job for you. I want you to go tell everyone what you have seen. Tell them your story. And she goes from weeping to witness. She goes from grieving and mourning to a hopeful ambassador of this good Sunday morning news. Now that's sort of the basic flow of John 21 through 18. But I want to add one more sort of John distinctive. So there's some theologians out there who think Mary seeing a gardener is sort of like an interesting random detail. Like, okay, cool. Now there's other theologians who think actually this is an echo back to something really important. In order to understand this echo, I think we need to actually go back to Genesis. So in Genesis, right, what happens? It's dark. It's chaotic. God creates all things, one through six, right? Day seven, he rests. What's today? Today is Sunday. Day seven was Saturday. Some theologians think that this is the first day of the new creation. This is the first day is what John says. The first day of a new creation. Now, then she sees whom? A gardener. Now let's go back to the second Genesis creation story, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are created and put in a garden. What is Adam's role? To tend to and keep the garden. What is that? A gardener. So some theologians say this is the first day of new creation and Jesus is the new Adam ushering in a new way of being in the world. And he's not the only one. You know, there are actually other people who say, oh yeah, Jesus is actually the new Adam. Let's turn to Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, he says this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So some theologians think that John is actually making a theological statement here. That Jesus has now risen on the first day of a new creation, what is the beginning that one day will be when Jesus returns to make all things new, is starting in that moment. Ushering in a new way of being in the world in relationship to Jesus as he fills us with his life. He is the new Adam. The old Adam brought death. Jesus, the new Adam, brings life. Another question is, okay, great, like... Kind of get 21 through 18. I even get this little maybe theological, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea. So how does this relate to then everyday life? We're trying to follow Jesus, practice his way today. What does this mean for us? The first thing I would say is the resurrection in a deep and profound way offers hope in a really difficult world. Right, if Jesus can conquer death, the absolute end of life, surely he can meet us in whatever difficulty, place of stuckness or struggle we are in this morning.
If he can bring life out of death, surely he can breathe life into whatever burdens you this morning. I think this is important to realize, right? When Mary is walking to the tomb, she's not thinking like, well, if Jesus is dead, Jesus is dead. She is not planning on the resurrection. She is hopeless, walking to a tomb, and she is surprised by the comforting hope of God in the midst of her difficulty. And my hope and prayer this morning is that in the midst of what are you, whatever you carry into this room, God can bring hope and comfort into your difficulty as well. Now, I was trying to think of, like, what is something we can do, right? So that's still a level out of everyday practice. I think one of the things that's really hard about difficult times is that they sort of absorb all of our attention, right? We just start obsessing over them. We get anxious. We mourn. But it's like requires all of our attention. So I was praying about it. I was wondering, like, how does this story speak into our moment? And one of the things that stood out is Mary, right? She turns and looks. And I think there's an invitation for all of us in the midst of the difficulty to turn and look for Jesus. The practical challenge I would say is, hey, if this is a really hard season for you, I would encourage you, take time, maybe if it's just 10 minutes once a day, maybe in the evening, and just ask Jesus, just turn and look for the ways that God is present in your life, is present in your day that maybe you didn't notice the first time through that day. Look for the surprising, hopeful presence of God. In difficulty, sometimes we need to turn and look for ways, God, that is already present with us that we maybe didn't see. So maybe at 7.30, you put the kids down or whatever, whatever your rhythm is, and just take a journal out. Say, God, how are you present to me today that I didn't see yet? Write it down. Two, the resurrection also offers truth in a super confusing world. Who here hasn't had the experience in modern life of having all kinds of information coming your way and you're like trying to sort out what is true and what is false, what is like distracting and what is helpful? And you're like, you know, it's like sorting through the fake news, the real news, which is which? Uh, how do I know, right? It can just be overwhelming. One of the things, so when I was a first encountered the person of Jesus, it was like this life-altering experience of God. But I realized after that moment, I still had doubts. Like, I still had confusion. And I just happened at that time Uh, I was at a secular, totally secular university, but there happened to be a theologian at the university who was this world-renowned scholar on the resurrection. And so I took his class, and I found that as I leaned into the evidence of the resurrection as he taught it, I realized this is incredibly rational and defensive. They're defensible. Like the evidence of the resurrection is crazy compelling. And what I found is that the truth of the evidence of the resurrection gave me confidence. It gave me a truth I could lean on in a confusing world that supported the hope I got when I encountered the person of Jesus. 
I thought maybe I'd just take a moment just to share three insights that I think are worth sharing. Um, and just to keep it lively, I thought I'd doodle it. All right, so we have the empty tomb, right? We have this resurrection of Jesus. And the question then is, so what are some, what's some evidence? First thing would be, right, Jesus dies on a cross. And then what happens? 11 out of his 12 disciples end up dying too. Now, if they made up the evidence for the resurrection, they doctor it and then try and write about it later, why do they die? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you die for a lie? People die for what is true. All of them are suffer, are tortured, they die. They die because Jesus actually was raised from the dead. Two, one of the, the first witness of the resurrection, it's my best girl, she's very happy. All right, that's Mary. In the Jewish culture, a woman cannot be a witness in a court of law. Cannot happen. So if you're going to doctor an account of the resurrection, one, you're not going to die for it. Two, you're not going to have a woman be the first person, the first witness to say, hey, this has happened, because it will be thrown out of your first century court. So if you're going to make it up, you're going to have two men at least arrive first, give an account because they can actually defend it in a court of law. Three, I'm going to do some really excellent drawing right here. That's Peter as pontiff. All right, so if you're in the first century and you're going to write an account of the resurrection, what you're not going to do is make Peter look silly. Peter is the leader of the first century church. All the historical evidence says, hey, Peter is this massively influential guy in the first century. You're not going to have him showing up and leaving without him saying, I see it all. Right? The unnamed disciple is the one who gets it. Peter walks away not understanding. I mean, these are just three simple little facts of why the evidence actually points to the historicity of the resurrection and not to it being a fable. If you're going to doctor the evidence, you would do it a lot better. What does that mean? Right, when I think sometimes, right, in this world where there's all this information, we sometimes actually need a truth that we can depend on. If the resurrection actually happened, then God actually is real. Then God actually identified Jesus as his son, as the Messiah. He raised him from life. He initiates a new kingdom in the world. The people who talk about it almost certainly saying what is true, and therefore the New Testament is reliable, and the Bible they depended on was reliable, and we can say, oh my gosh, in a world of confusing information, this is actually dependable. This is actually true. And what does that mean, right? So, on a practical level, I think for some of us, 
Yeah, we need to look to encounter the person of God, see how he's present in our life. We also need to, I think, figure out how do we lean into the truth of the New Testament. I think for some of us, it would be a really good exercise to actually read something on the historical evidence of the resurrection. Like if you're trying to sort out what you believe, what you don't, like I would highly encourage you, read a book or a blog or an article on the evidence for the resurrection. I actually think it will give you something to lean on when life gets hard. And if you relate to that, I want you to email me this week and I will send you either a blog you can read, a short book, or, I mean, there's all kinds out there. John Piper has one, right? Uh, William Lane Craig has one. N.T. Wright has a 740-page tome you can read. Anyway, I will give you from blog to book to tome and you can choose. Email me. I would love to send you one of those links. I think that's a practical way to booster up your sense of what is truth you can lean on. Three, the resurrection also offers purpose in a distracted world. If you notice, right, Mary doesn't sit there, encounter Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, and this would be super understandable, like, Mary, kick back. Get a falafel, put your feet up, have some good Galilean wine, you know, You've been through a lot, Mary, and she has, but he doesn't say that. What does he do? He sends her into the world to be a witness of what she has seen. Mary, tell your story of what you've experienced. He gives her a purpose. He offers hope. He offers truth. He also offers purpose. And what we see is that from the very beginning, though the resurrection takes place on a Sunday morning, it is not just a Sunday morning experience from 10.15 to 11.30. Right? What happens that Sunday is an unstoppable movement is unleashed in the world. And people start going from person to person talking about the reality of Jesus' aliveness. Right? In cities and in villages in suburban communities, and all over the world, and it spreads like wildfire as people embrace the purpose that God has given them to share about Jesus' resurrection and the reality of God. The question is, how do we lean into that purpose on a super practical level? And I think it actually starts with, on a very practical level, confession. Mark Labberton has this phrase about sort of, he calls it the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. And I think a lot of us, I know I can, just get caught up in these mesmerizing rhythms that are really about comfort, they're really about distraction, and they're really disconnected from the purpose of God. And I think most of us can get caught up in that. Right? Life becomes about sort of good food, awesome Netflix binges, and, you know, great vacations. All good things, but not necessarily the best thing that Jesus has for us. I think it starts with confession, identifying the ways. Maybe it's taking 15 minutes this week and just identifying the ways that you are distracted from God's purpose in your life. And then, not just confession, but then listening. God, what do you want from me? God, what is the more you have for my everyday life? So I don't have to settle for the monotony or the boredom, but God, what is the more you have for me? Don't you want that more? 
Most people I run into do. I know I do. God has an awesome purpose for all of us. And it's certainly going to be connected to sharing our story and living it in the world. Now I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And we're going to just take a moment just to kind of lean into this text. Lean into the hope that Jesus offers. Maybe hope is what you feel like you most need this morning. Maybe it's truth. Maybe you just feel like you're confused, you feel a little lost, and you need a sense of God's truth. Or maybe it's purpose. And we're just going to take this moment as we lean into worship. I'm going to pray for us that God would show up in the ways that we need, as he did for Mary before that tomb, bringing us newness of life. Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place. We ask for you to show up. God, bring us the hope we need in our morning. God, bring us the truth we need in the midst of our confusion. God, bring us the purpose we need in the midst of just all the distractions in our life. God, come. We need you. We need you as much as Mary did on that first Sunday morning. Break in. God, come. Surprise us this morning. Surprise us, God, with your presence, with your life, with your words, with your encouragement. God, come. Jesus, come. Help us slow down and just be present to your goodness in this moment.